Happy Tuesday, Brianna. How do you plan to spend one of the DC's only holidays? <laughs> Are we counting the State of the Union as a holiday? Um, I'm going to record for my podcast. I'm going to go to the gym, and I'm going to write my radar just like I do every night, kinky. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll be watching the State of the Union, and you'll get our reaction to it tomorrow, of course. But what are we talking about today? Well, in anticipation of tonight, the Capitol grounds have once again become a fortress of sorts as President Biden is set to address the nation on the State of the Union tonight at 9 p.m. It will be the first speech Biden gives after Republicans have regained control of the House. Biden seems to be preparing for tonight's speech over some cookies and milk, a very wholesome, if low-protein, way to prepare. Hmm. Meanwhile, Punchbowl News lays out what to watch in tonight's address and the top things they are watching out for. Can Biden's good news break through? As we discussed yesterday, Biden's polling numbers are less than ideal, this despite Democrats having outperformed expectations in the November midterm elections and several legislative accomplishments in Biden's first term. A new Washington Post-ABC News poll shows that 62% of Americans say President Biden has not achieved much during his first two years in office, and a majority of Democrats, 52%, in fact, don't even want him to seek re-election in 2024. Yikes. Mm. What's more, a new Monmouth University poll finds that despite the fact that the U.S. economy is growing, unemployment is the lowest it's been since 1969 and the likelihood of a recession is receding. According to Goldman Sachs, a record number of people report they're worse off now than they were two years ago. A new ABC Washington Post poll released this week found 41 percent of Americans say they're in worse shape financially since Biden took office. This is this age-old gap between the Janet Yellen of the world and the economists who like to get on TV and say everything is fine. But it's not the case. And it's not, I don't even think, necessarily attributable to the short-term cycles of presidencies. We've seen a multi-decade generational decline in American standard of living. And so trying to pitch the American public that, okay, things are incrementally better than they were a year or two ago, doesn't get to the core of the issue, which is that millennials as an entire generation are the first not to do as well as their boomer parents and on and on down the line. Well, and a year or two ago, three years ago, was the worst thing that has happened in many of our lifetimes, yeah. uh, a, a crushing economic depression brought on by the pandemic. So it, it's never enough to just say, oh, we're doing better than we were then. Of course we're doing better than we were then. And Biden likes to take credit for just kind of going back on, on some levels, returning to, to how the economy was, how various things were before the pandemic hit, and say, look, we fixed this, when it's like, I don't know that you get credit for that. Well, look, I, I think that all politicians do that, right? When 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 uh, Obama came in in the middle of, at the beginning of the recession, there were a lot of people who pointed to that and said, "Oh, he just spent so much." When you know it was the recession era, right. spending everybody everybody does this. Each side makes that argument. Where the American people miss out is that instead of making comparisons to what the other party did or didn't, didn't do, they're not making absolute claims about how they're going to actually improve people's lives prospectively and what the parties could be doing if they actually had any interest in doing that instead of just scoring points on each other. So, okay, even if it's true that Biden is better than two years ago, what why should people vote for him again? Why is he comparing himself just against, again, this pandemic era standard, instead of making a case for not only what he could potentially do, but what the Republicans, by contrast, perhaps aren't willing to do? And so the American people can get a real good sense of what they will get if they vote for one candidate over the other. Mm. 
Well, uh, some other things we'll be keeping an eye on tonight. Biden will call for quadrupling the levy on corporate stock buybacks and will renew his calls for a minimum tax on billionaires during, during his State of the Union address. With Democrats no longer the party in control in the House and holding a slim majority in the Senate, it's highly unlikely that these pleas will go very far. And of course, this marks the first time Speaker Kevin McCarthy will preside over the joint session, sitting next to Vice President Kamala Harris, who had a less than positive expose in the New York Times this week, and we'll see if that turns out to be as awkward as it could be. Uh, remember when Nancy <laughs> Pelosi, did she shred uh, Trump's copy of his speech, mm -hmm. the program? What did she shred? She shredded something. I think it was basically the program, which yeah. includes, I guess, the Trump's re remarks, the, the most transformative moment in American history, which made a huge uh, policy impact, as we all remember. <laughs> but look, I, I, Well, this, is the, this whole thing is theatrics. I yes. mean, what, we have divided government. Nothing is going to come out of this. The opportunity for enacting legislation is over. It has passed, as it always does with a new president, right? The first, they have, they have a year, maybe two, to yeah. get anything done. That's over. We have divided government now. So now this is all about, honestly, this is all about positioning oneself. Yeah, and it's worth noting that, you know, Democrats kind of saying, oh, yes, we have these great ideas. We have this billionaire minimum tax. We have this levy on uh, that's supposed to deter corporate buybacks. For one, Experts say that the levy on corporate buybacks is not high enough to actually deter any of that behavior. So the kind of behavior that caused the Southwest kerfuffle over the holidays, where they, they issued out all of this money in dividends and did corporate buybacks instead of investing in updating their you know, scheduling software so you wouldn't have an issue like that, none of that behavior is going to be deterred by Biden's mm -hmm. policy. But even if it were, you had the House for the last two years. So to, to try to propose a policy like this and then say, oh, well, it's not going to get done because of Republicans, it's complete and total theater. They want you to watch the next episode. They're, uh, exactly. They, they need I, to have a cliffhanger I, I'm supposed to, to hold your attention. That, that Democrats yeah. are suddenly deeply invested in a billionaire tax? Since when? Not only are they not investing in that, they'll bail out that whatever industry it is, if they ever face any jeopardy, yeah. right? That the industry, including the airline industry, yes. a, a frequent example of this, they'll send their lobbyists or their people to Washington and say, oh, we really learned our lesson. Can you just, can you float us for yeah. now? They'll get their money. Then they'll do all the things that made everyone mad in the first place. Yeah. I, over and over again. It, it's gross. Could be the banking sector, could be the energy sector, could be the auto <laughs> industry, yeah. could be anything. And we have different feelings about what the implications of that are. I would suggest that if the government is going to keep paying for these industries and the industries are going to keep fleecing the American public, then we should be having a conversation about nationalization. But I don't want to open that can of worms here. It's just to say that they get away with this bait and switch largely because the media, the corporate media, I'm sorry, writes articles credulously describing how the Democrats want good things. Oh, look at these wonderful things Joe Biden's going to propose in the State of the Union. And then they'll toss in a line that's, that, that absolve him from following through, saying, oh, well, if it doesn't work, it's because of the Republicans forgetting that just a month ago it wasn't Republicans and he had two years from the from the second he got into office the narrative was Biden can't do anything because of Manchin well, and Well the mainstream media is not at all interested in the substance of this right they this is about the posture and the appearance and the theater of it which doesn't actually matter to any normie regular person uh you're right people are listening if they're listening at all if they're listening at all which is a doubtful proposition to begin with they're they're listening to hear what the policies are
They want to know what the policies yeah, are. But the, me the media wants the, it's the, the pageantry of it. It's the, look how the Democrats, look how Biden is framing himself as the champion of democracy. Mm -hmm. Something like that. Something that nobody cares about. Yeah, I saw some coverage that was asking, you know, how rude are the, are the Republicans going to be in the audience? Are we going to get, like, a, a you lie moment? That's what people are kind of... That's what they're hoping for. That Not people, the media, desperate for yeah. that. They want Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert to have, like, a cat fight or something. Oh, they look want... who's sitting down and won't clap for oh, the troops or, oh. or that kind of coverage. It's disappointing. You're right. It's not substantive. Who didn't clap for Zelensky? That's going to be <laughs> well, <laughs> off every, with his head. Every, everybody <laughs> in our government, it seems, is going to not just clap for Zelensky, but drape a signed flag around um, their shoulders at the podium without questioning whether or not the least there's a hypocrisy with respect to how much they're willing to spend on Ukraine versus domestic spending. Don't expect to hear much about that. Yeah. Although, uh, you know, there are Republicans uh, who are willing to look at defense spending. We highlighted uh, that the Heritage Foundation has said uh, we need to take a look at defense spending. I was listening to Senator Rand Paul. Was mm -hmm. on. Uh, I was on Fox this weekend, and while I was in the green room, he was on with Maria Bartiromo, and she used the um, the kind of the Chinese spy balloon sort of say, Are we, "Is this now really a time to cut defense spending?" And Rand Paul turned right around and said, "Yes, yeah, absolutely. Our our, our ability to be be protected from Chinese spy balloons yeah. is the, the defense. The current defense uh, budget does not need to be that lucrative to, to deal with yeah, that. And, and he absolutely gets credit for that." It, it is worth saying that, and I don't know if it was the same clip, but in a clip I saw him talking about that, and I agree with him entirely on that. He also talked about cutting other social safety net programs that Americans yeah, rely gonna, on and are very that are very popular. Before we go, uh, what did you what do you make of uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders giving the response speech? I think it'll be uh, it'll be a nice flashback to the time when she was uh, <laughs> she was press, the first press secretary mm -hmm. for or maybe second maybe after second. Uh, after. after um, the guy who did Dancing with the Stars. Spicer. 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 Uh, so, uh, you know, she has a very uh, specific delivery. I, 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 I miss her kind of refusing to answer or saying she'd already answered the question. She takes a question from a reporter says, I believe I already answered that. Thank you. And moves on. It's not the worst strategy. <laughs> it's it's a, better than the one they, they currently have. So, so mostly it'll be a, a nice flashback. People, to see people her have said this is again. a demonstration of kind of a, a, a younger part of the Republican Party. People, uh, you know, have argued, you know, does this say something about uh, kind of a Trump alignment and, and as someone who is Trump aligned being in that position as opposed to someone who is maybe more DeSantis aligned or neutral or maybe going to take their own bite at the apple, bite at the presidency. The, the State of the Union speech doesn't matter very much and the response speech <laughs> matters even less. So uh, we, we, sh we shouldn't get all worked up about it, but I'm it'll be delightful to hear her speak again. <laughs> That's my right. feeling. Well, I look forward to hearing what's on your radar next, Robbie. What's on your radar today? Well, the wearing of masks to prevent the spread of COVID-19 and other respiratory illnesses had almost no effect at the societal level, according to a rigorous new review of the available research. Quote, interestingly, 12 trials in the review, 10 in the community and two among healthcare workers, found that wearing masks in the community probably makes little or no difference to influenza-like or COVID-19-like illness transmission, writes Tom Jefferson, a British epidemiologist and co-author of the Cochrane Library's new report on these masking trials. Quote, equally, the review found that masks had no effect on laboratory-confirmed influenza or SARS-CoV-2 outcomes. Five other trials showed no difference between one type of mask over another. Now, that finding 
It's significant, given how comprehensive Cochrane's review was. The randomized control trials had hundreds of thousands of participants and made useful comparisons. People who received masks, and according to self-reporting at least, actually wore them versus people who did not. Other studies that have tried to uncover the efficacy of mask requirements have tended to compare one municipality with another without taking into account relevant differences between the groups, what the vaccination rate was, for instance. This was true of an infamous study of masking in Arizona schools that was conducted at the county level. The findings, those findings, were cited by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention as reason to keep mask mandates in place. Now, quote, comparing Pima and Maricopa counties is a pointless way to study masks because the people are fundamentally different apart from masking, notes Vinay Prasad, an epidemiologist who has opposed COVID-19 mandates. He also writes that they have different rates of vaccination and different levels of caution. Cochrane, on the other hand, employed randomized control trials, which are considered the gold standard for review. And the results are difficult to argue with. Zoom out to the population level, and masks did not have much of a discernible impact on COVID-19 cases. The pooled results of RCTs did not show a clear reduction in respiratory viral infection with the use of medical or surgical masks, write the authors. There were no clear differences between the use of medical, surgical masks compared with N95 respirators in healthcare workers when used in routine care to reduce respiratory viral infection. David Zweig, a writer who helped call attention to the flaws in the Arizona study and has been interviewed on our show many times, notes that these negative findings comport with basic reality. While individual mask wearers might get some benefit for a while if they consistently, perfectly wear masks, this doesn't comport with the aggregate experience. According to Zweig, even the most ardent mask supporters who want to wear them properly fail to do so. And as this study and others illustrate, even when masks are required, they're either not worn properly or not worn at all by a significant number of people. Zweig quotes Benjamin Recht, a, st a statistician at UC Berkeley, who says at this point, I doubt any study will change anyone's mind about masking, but the one consistent finding of all of the randomized studies is that the effect of this intervention at the population level is vanishingly small. Well, the findings have yet to penetrate the mainstream media's bubble, whereas flawed studies like the Arizona one received rave reviews in the pages of the New York Times and also the Washington Post, so far the Cochrane Review has not attracted coverage from these outlets whatsoever. Nor has it garnered commentary from the CDC, an agency that has routinely seized on less compelling evidence in order to recommend the maintenance of intrusive COVID-19 interventions like mass mandates and like lockdowns. Now, indeed, while mask mandates are no longer a typical part of American life, there are still enclaves that require masking. Some U.S. schools have kept mask mandates in place or brought them back during flu season. Within the nation's capital, George Washington University still requires masks in classrooms. But if following the science means updating one's priors when new evidence becomes available, then institutions that require masks should finally concede, three years into the pandemic, that indefinitely forcing them on unwilling people, especially children, is not a defensible strategy. So for any lingering government requirements, let this please be the final and long overdue word, no more mandates. So this was a, a review of a number of independent trial studies that use this randomized control process. And it just, it didn't turn up you know, if you strongly believe that masks were having a massive difference at the population to level, level, you would have liked to see in some of these studies some data to support that, and they didn't find any. Yeah, well, what the study says is that, uh, for instance, relatively low numbers of people followed the guidance about wearing masks 
or about hand hygiene, which may have affected the results of the studies. They're very clear that there are a number of factors, including transmission through eye ducts, the fact that people are not doing hand hygiene and then touching their masks, that people aren't wearing fitted masks, that these surgical masks that were never intended to stop particles from getting to your mouth and nose obviously don't work in the same way that N95 masks are supposed to, that people's N95 masks aren't in fact fitted and on and on and on. And what the study concludes is that more research is needed and that because uh, of the kind of the lack of um, compliance with the study, especially among children, the lack of evidence, I think you're completely right. COVID mask wearing among kids is not working. It's not stopping the transmission between kids. And the study notes it's because kids are the least likely group to actually be able to maintain their hygiene, to be able to wash their hands and keep their masks on and not act like kids. I think for the, the hand washing, they did find some positive results yeah, for hand washing on its own as an intervention. And I so think, that I did turn up some evidence. I think that's so important. And one of the things that people yeah. should be stressing out of the study is how I think, yes, the CDC was negligent and government officials have been negligent and not maintaining how important hand washing isn't, isn't is in fact. Mm -hmm. um, I know from personal experience, I've said this a million times on the show and elsewhere, I, when COVID started, I had this recognition about how certain habits that you grow up with, like wash your hands before dinner, in a social context, I would go to restaurants, I would touch the door to the restaurant, I would get out of my Uber and touch the door, I would sit down and start noshing on the snacks on the table. And for some reason, it just never clicked to me that I should be getting up and going to the bathroom. I mean, that's, that's mm -hmm. a gross admission. But post-COVID, changing my behaviors in those ways, washing my hands more carry diligently, a little hand sanitizer carrying with, hand yeah. sanitizer, I'm very diligent yeah. about those kinds of things. And my my incidence of illness has dropped precipitously. I don't think I've gotten a cold. I mean, I did get COVID at one point after flying on an international flight, at which point I had to become a mass at a certain point to eat over seven hours. But I haven't even gotten a cold. And I used to be sick basically, you know, November through February every year. So this idea that masks don't work because people aren't using masks regularly well, that's or part of the study yeah that's you know i think it's really dangerous because there are a lot of people you know the mandates are gone i think ultimately that's a good thing for civil libertarian reasons but there's still a lot of people in this country who are very vulnerable to COVID. it just is we talk a lot about how oh it's only obese people or it's only old people okay that's a lot of people especially in america and i agree with everyone who says they should have been stressing vitamin d they should have been stressing these other interventions one of those things that they should have been stressing was wearing a mask isn't enough if you're not going to wear a high quality mask and have it fitted appropriately and also if you're not washing your hands and doing these other kinds of things so if people still want mandates being largely gone and good if people still actually have a sincere interest in protecting the population, then the, the, the guidance, what we should be pushing for, is for, I think, high-quality masks to be distributed and made available for free, because they're not inexpensive. And moreover, that people should be getting more specific guidance about how to make sure their masks actually work, not throwing up their hands and saying, well, because people aren't using masks properly and it's not working, we shouldn't use masks at all. Well, but it's a little bit of life gets in the way. Actual human behavior is a factor here and not one that can just be ignored. And I think there's a, a naivety among the kind of the, the CDC scientific elite type people that, that say, oh, yeah, this intervention will work because we'll just have everyone wear masks until we say don't wear masks anymore and they'll just wear masks at all times. But of course, that just doesn't we can't do that. It doesn't reflect actual human. Like life is messier than that. People are not perfect little automatons that can just internalize people, government advice and just do that. Maybe people can make their choices. People, well, people can, make can make their choices, choices about sure. not doing it. But there are a lot of people. I mean, you and I both know someone 
who we work with, whose face we've never seen because mm -hmm. they are very diligent about mask wearing because their job makes them well, exposed. Everyone can do whatever choice they want for themselves. I, unlike you, Brianna, I get, I get sick as often when I, I heard, when I was locked down. I heard you're feeling a little under I... the weather now, Robbie, in fact. And I wonder if some of us took a test before they came into work today. Because look, People's lived experience teaches them that they know that the masks have had some impact on their ability to have respiratory illnesses. And I encourage everyone to actually read this study. One, because I think that there's a really important evidence about the importance of hand washing. And two, because it's caveated up the wazoo about the, um, the, um, uh, the, the vulnerabilities of all of these kinds of studies. And it's also worth noting that these are measuring community spread. I want to see a study that is tracking 100 people who very diligently and appropriately wear masks and 100 people who don't. That's the kind of evidence that I think most people, especially immunocompromised people or folks who are, have close relationships with immunocompromised people, really want to know. If I am actually diligent, will it significantly lower my ability of catching COVID or passing it on to someone who is vulnerable? But, not, but you can not see that's is, kind of a, that's a question mark still. We don't really know that no, for sure. Uh, we, we, we don't have evidence. Yeah. I, I would say that this, what the study proves is that wearing masks what this study indicates well, is that wearing is masks inaccurately fit in, in, a, yeah. in, a, in a poor it shows way. It just 100 people you describe. 100 people perfectly diligently wearing masks. What it shows is that there aren't enough of those people in the world to have, well, have that be our main studied. way to combat or they're this. Not being and this is part of what this, this study points out is that there has been a real lack and inadequacy of funding and interest in pursuing these kinds of things. It's mm -hmm. worth noting, you've pointed this out at studies in the past, that many of the studies here are either government, they're all like pharmaceutical backed or government and pharmaceutical backed. And mm -hmm. you can see why a pharmaceutical company would have an interest in saying, don't worry about masks. The only thing that can protect you is me and my shots, mm -hmm. me and my vaccines. It's very interesting to me that there's been this alliance between people who are vaccine skeptical and concerned about the harmful side effects of vaccines, but also very anti-mask. Because from my perspective, as someone who is very sympathetic to a lot of the vaccine concerns, well, the only way left then to protect yourself is with physical barriers. The, only, the least invasive way to protect yourself is with physical barriers. So I hope that people don't take this study and say, We're on the opposite side of this one, too. The, I, the wind. I, I mean, I've made no secret of the fact that I, I just, I hate wearing them so much that I wanted the vaccines to be, I was really rooting for them to be super effective so we wouldn't have to wear the masks anymore. It, and then it was, it was disappointing when, uh, when the vaccines didn't, you know, they still have positive, I, I've gotten vaccinated, they have positive effects for, uh, especially for people in higher risk groups, but they, the, the vaccines, like the masks, were not going to be, you know, a, a, a single policy that we're going, I mean, they're, in fact, don't have, very much impact on cases at all. Um, uh, uh, now the study says the masks don't either, but. Uh, well, the, the, when, when not used appropriately. And so I, I think that one of the questions the study raises, and it's worth, it's worth following up on, why have there been no studies? We've been talking for two years. Why haven't there been? Vinay Prasad wrote about that in that Substack piece I cited. He's like, Fauci could have ordered 10 of these reviews right. and didn't. So why is it the only studies we get are basically yeah. these Pfizer-backed studies, which confirm results that are convenient for Pfizer? Why hasn't the government or anybody else shown any interest? In Fauci had a lot of confident closely? things to express on the subject, both ways, <laughs> that, were, that would contradict themselves without, any, without actually evidence to really suggest it one way or the other. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Interesting stuff. We'll have more rising right after this.
former Trump administration officials are pushing back against reporting that Chinese spy balloons were detected in U.S. airspace during the former president's term. This, even as new CNN reporting confirms the existence of a U.S. military intelligence report mentioning surveillance balloon sightings in Hawaii and Florida during the Trump presidency, according to an excerpt of the report reviewed by CNN. Here's former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. A lot of people are confused about this. I mean, how could it be that the top officials in the Trump administration could be in office and three different spy crafts fly into our airspace and those of you in charge are not alerted and then somehow later this administration learns of it? <laughs> it's, um, it's confounding to me, Martha. Uh, I, I can speak for myself. I, I certainly never became aware that there was a a, a three bus size floating device coming across our country for five days, either CI director or secretary of state. I've talked to others who are on my teams. They don't know anything about it either. I'm, I'm anxious to hear how this ends, but we've seen Ambassador Bolton, Ambassador O'Brien, two secretaries of defense all say they didn't know about it. So I'm, I'm completely confounded about what they're speaking about. And frankly, it looks like an effort to deflect from what was a disastrous handful mm -hmm. of days. Do you believe it that they're, you know, that he, I mean, what do you make? Okay. So here, here, here's how this has played out. He's made the statement that he never knew about any balloons. Republicans have saying, obviously this never happened during Trump's presidency. This is a uniquely problematic thing that happened with Biden. Now there's reporting that obviously there were incidents like this during the Trump administration. And there was further reporting that apparently Trump, there was a choice not to tr tell Trump because he was perceived as being too volatile to basically handle the news. Everybody's yeah, just that, saying things. Yeah, that's that's a very anonymous sources tell CNN kind of. Um, thing well, no, the it, it was it was two Republicans. I mean, I'll pull the story up now, but it was two Republicans who were having had these uh, conflicting accounts. So again, there are plenty of peop people in the Republican Party who are not in the Trump camp anymore. He certainly made yeah. a share of enemies. But what do you make of how this is all playing out? Um. So we interviewed uh, Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis yesterday about this, and he pointed out a lot of, I think, very interesting things, and everyone should go back and watch that interview, that, first of all, China has satellites that can get mm -hmm. great images. So, so what, what they're getting from the spy balloon that they couldn't get from the satellites is, is not clear. Well, so, then, he, the he thought it was, so he thought it was some kind of, it was intended to send a message. So provo mm -hmm. a deliberate provocation. Um, he, now, he thinks it was a badly delivered message. It's clearly backfired because it's made everybody really angry, and China's kind of trying to move on from it. It's just we should just get past this. But he thinks they were trying to send a message. That's why they do things like this. I don't know. That's, you know, that's one take. Obviously, it, uh, it, this has gotten everyone really riled up. It got many days of media coverage. Um, I, I think it, uh, it contributed to a very hawkish mindset toward China that, you know, what are we doing militarily to be ready for a confrontation with China, a confrontation we absolutely should not have and we should work to, mm -hmm. to de-escalate from because that would be as crazy as having a war with Russia over Ukraine, mm -hmm. um, honestly. But, uh, but it, it certainly uh, lent it, like I said in our A block, you know, Rand Paul was confronted about how, how could you support, how could you be for, de you know, decreasing our military's budget at a time when the Chinese have spy balloons flying over our country. So it's really alarmed everyone and put everyone in a hawkish posture, which is just bad and unhealthy for like the psyche, for the budget, for everything. Do we know anything about the information collecting capacities of what was what was on the balloon? No, we shot it. We we exploded it. So uh, now we have to dig it out of the ocean and, and see if we can find out 
exactly what they. But they, but the the balloon was clearly, uh, according to Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis, the balloon's positioning was near you know, sensitive nuclear facilities, et cetera. So it, they they already know where those things are because it that was its flight trajectory. Right, but and they have satellites. That's what was going to be my follow up. If they already know these things from, I mean. So it's just to send a message then. And so it's on, like a, it's like a, I'm not touching you. I'm, I'm above <laughs> your country in my spy balloon. I don't know. So if that's if that's what do the you rationale, if that's the rationale for what you know the Chinese sending the balloon, then it does seem like the folks who kept it relatively quiet under the Trump administration were frankly doing the right thing. Yeah. Not reacting to the yeah. sibling fake touching you in the backseat of the car. Not giving the me the media the predatory media with nothing else to do, nothing to talk about. Over the weekend, it was wall-to-wall to wall coverage of this spy balloon. And now it seems as though the same conservatives who are happy to perhaps rightfully keep a lid on this during the Trump administration have chose to blow this up into a media frenzy make, because apparently— You can't what, ask them to not hitting, do something. To, hitting Joe yeah, Biden is more right, important than our national bad. security interests. Yep. Yeah, it's uh, craven and disappointing. I mean, it's yeah. You you can't expect re Republicans. Many Republicans are you know are in their heart of hearts are uh, Bush style neoconservatives. The the kind of Trump philosophy has been trying to purge the party of those individuals, but uh, and they know they're they're beaten for the moment. But whenever the news cycle gives them an opportunity, especially if if they can weaponize it against Democrats, Democrats are. Week on the spy balloon issue, uh, of course they're going to take that. Do you have a sense that that is um, moving voters? Because there's, there's obviously a conflict between the idea that Democrats are weak on hawkishness, Democrats are weak on wanting to have conflict with Russia, China, Democrats are weak on defense, and this kind of anti-interventionist, anti-war movement that has some roots in the conservative party. How do you square those two? Well, no, I. I mean, is it going to cause messaging confusion if, Democrat, if Republicans are simultaneously saying, yeah. why aren't Democrats hawkish enough at the same time they're trying to sell themselves as less hawkish than Democrats? Well, they can creatively square that circle by saying that, and then some Republican senators have said this, maybe J.D. Vance said this perhaps, perhaps it was Blake Masters, who's not actually a Republican senator, but someone like that, that the, the Ukraine issue, Russia-Ukraine uh, redirects the the focus of the U.S. from China, where it should be, that th there is a strain of thinking in Republican circles that Russia is the wrong fight, Russia-Ukraine is the wrong fight, China is the actual fight, uh, which, you know, which has a certain amount of, I, I, I don't think we should be any more likely to have a military confrontation with China. Um, you know, we do have numerous grievances with China. We shouldn't escalate them. Well, to that's why so many leftists are skeptical and unwilling to give credit to statements that are superficially anti-war coming from some Republicans, when the perception is, indications point to the idea that they are simply wanting to pick a different war as opposed to being I mean, anti-interventionist. There's no defense of the Democrats here. I'm talking about leftists. Leftists who identify as neither party are, uh, there is, you know, a debate within the community about whether or not credit should be given to various anti-war individuals on the right. And while I think some of them would, you know, in a, in a consistent, principled way, be against all of these interventions, I'm not sure exactly what um, Rand Paul has said about China, for instance. But I imagine there's some kind of libertarian conservatives who principally would be against sure. all of them. A lot of the rhetoric very much has the tone of not not Ukraine, China. Yeah, which isn't anti-war in the least. Just I mean, to be very clear. It depends. 
Well, it depends exactly what's being said. I, I don't think being anti-war, being anti-intervention means you're not allowed to make criticisms of a foreign totalitarian government. We just should not right, go but to war what, with them. What are we talking about here? We're talking about ginning up this kind of jingoistic, xenophobic uh, rhetoric to hurt Joe Biden in the public opinion polls, saying, why aren't you being harsh enough against China? You're soft on China. Go harder on China. Go harder on China. That's exactly the kind of rhetoric that gets people into trouble, right? So which is it? Are you wanting sure. to, what does it mean for, for Biden to go harder on China? Are you saying that Biden should increase the military budget? Are you saying that Biden should put even more warships in, you know, in the Pacific? Right, no, none you know, of what, that. Like, so what does that none even that. mean? Like the rhetoric, you can't, I don't think we can pretend that the rhetoric is completely divorced from what political realities might ensue. And therefore, you are, in fact, if, if you're choosing to hit Biden on this, I understand, like, I'm no fan of the guy, but if you're trying to make this balloon, a, you know, something that hurts Biden, and you're doing so by elevating conflict, rhetorical tensions that could lead to, like, real-life tensions with China, then you, I don't think you can credibly sit there and call yourself you anti-war. Are you saying it's a lot of hot air? <laughs> Okay. I wonder right. if I'm the first person to make that joke. I bet so. I bet so. Well done. I'll give you that one. We're rising right after this. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene is calling out Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, tweeting, quote, I have repeatedly asked you to debate me, but you have been a coward and can't even respond. But you go on CNN and lie about me. When are you going to be an adult? Actually debate me on policy instead of run your mouth like a teenage girl. Here's uh, the comments in question. These individuals that Kevin McCarthy has appointed, chosen to appoint to committee, George Santos claimed that his grandparents were in the Holocaust. That was a lie, a disgusting lie. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene regularly trafficking in anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Paul Gosar inciting, these are individuals, Marjorie Taylor Greene included, inciting violence against specific members in the body. He has appointed all three of them to House committees, not just one, but multiple. Marjorie Taylor Greene, who was engaging in 9-11 conspiracy theories, Kevin McCarthy appointed her to the Homeland Security Committee. So there is really no consistency here. Joining us now to weigh in is host of the Savvy Sabs podcast and co-host of the Revolutionary Blackout Network, Sabrina Salvati. Welcome back, Sabrina. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for joining us. All right. Weigh in here. Is, is Marjorie Taylor Greene being fair or unfair here, saying that AOC isn't willing to debate her, and then AOC coming back and saying, we have opportunities to talk uh, on the House floor all the time, and you're barely around? You know, who, who scored more points in this exchange? Oh, dear, these two. I would say it doesn't necessarily need to be a debate, but obviously there should be a discussion between the two. They've gone back and forth for quite a while. Uh, I will say in reference to AOC's comment there on CNN about there being no consistency, there actually is consistency. The consistency is that regardless if someone from your political party is correct or not, the consistency is that you will support them and defend them. And this doesn't just happen with the Republican Party. It also happens with the Democratic Party as well. And AOC herself has been guilty of doing this. And I'll give an example in reference to Brett Kavanaugh and Joe Biden. If we go back to the Brett Kavanaugh allegations, he was accused of sexual assault. Remember, the Republican politicians in D.C. supported and defended Brett Kavanaugh. The Democrat politicians did not. 
if we want to compare that to Joe Biden, Joe Biden also was accused of sexual assault, and the Republican Party uh, opposed Joe Biden, and the Democratic Party defended Joe Biden and supported him, and that includes AOC. So I think a big part of the problem is the political parties, regardless if someone from their party is incorrect or not, they will still defend them as long as they're on their team. Yeah, I, I don't want AOC and Marjorie Taylor Greene to have a debate. I want them to have a like a conversation and work together on things they might agree on, which I think ostensibly would be some aspects of foreign policy. Marjorie Taylor Greene is one of the uh, members, the minority members of the Republican uh, caucus trying to to push for a less interventionist posture toward Ukraine, for example. That is something ostensibly that many on the left would support to the extent AOC is a <laughs> occasionally a representative of a of a leftist progressivism. Maybe she would show some interest in joining in that effort. She's certainly been asked about it at a, quite a few town halls. Uh, but but AOC, I mean, both of them, I guess, but especially AOC seem to be in the low, well, well, she's part of the the MTG is part of the Republican Party, so I can't ever be seen to be working with her at all or agreeing with her, even if, even if we might agree. Is, is that what's going on? I think that that's a big part of it is because of the fact that she does belong to the opposing party. But at the same time, you know, I would like to see AOC have this same type of courage uh, and, and, and voice here in reference to some of the corporate Democrats in her own party. You know, where is the same type of fire and energy from AOC in reference to people like Hakeem Jeffries, who publicly has condemned progressive policies and progressives in D.C. like her. You know, there's nothing there. She's going to back him and support him. So I think it's really easy to appear to be left when the person in power, the president in power at that time, was a Republican. And then once it switched to Joe Biden and the president in power was a Democrat, all of a sudden, we saw progressives like AOC cower and defend Joe Biden and say that Joe Biden is doing a great job. So I think neither one of them have really been consistent, and this has been a problem we've seen across the board. Yeah, I think that's a really uh, important point, that the energy that she's bringing to talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene is not the same energy that she's bringing to talking about some of these other issues. Even the context of all of this that we're talking about today is in response to Ilhan Omar being kicked off of her committee, right? And many people have observed that she gave this passionate speech, which for some reason, in, in which for some reason she adopted the cadence of a, of a Baptist preacher, but even putting that to the side, you very rarely see that kind of energy being brought for people like Hakeem Jeffries, people like Joe Biden, people who have had the power to actually enact progressive policy over the last two years. I want to ask you specifically, though, about this, this Jewish space laser accusation. What people have been saying is that if we're really concerned about anti-Semitism, there are myriad examples that you can pick from Republicans that hasn't resulted in them having the same kind of a censorship within the House that Ilhan Omar has been subjected to. The main one is this claim that Marjorie Taylor Greene talked about Jewish space lasers. It's from a post from, I think, back in 2018 on her um, uh, Facebook, where she talks about space lasers being the cause of a number of wildfires that were going on at the time. The Jewish part of it is not actually part of the quote, but it's she's she has theorized that the space lasers, generally speaking, are funded by the Rothschild banking firm, and it's part of those kind of uh, wink, wink, nod, nod accusations of you know glo globalists and Soros that many people read as uh, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Do you think it's fair to make the com the co comparison here um, that, that that Marjorie Taylor Greene is is equally uh, or is in fact has been anti-Semitic and the Republican? Uh, 
party has ignored it. Do you think that Democrats are getting over their skis, out over their skis a little bit, trying to create Jewish space lasers as a phrase that wasn't actually said by Marjorie Taylor Greene? Yeah, I think it's a bit of a, a reach here for AOC to make that accusation. But I will say, I don't really think at the end of the day, it's really about anti-Semitism. I think it's about just uh, supporting your party. For example, Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell were also removed. And one of the statements that AOC also made is that this is about removing a woman of color. But she leaves out the fact that you have two white men that were part of your party that also were removed as well. So I don't think it's even about that. I think it's just about making sure that the party who has control of the House right now, which is the Republican Party, that they gain control of those committee seat assignments. And I think that's really what this is about. So unfortunately, this goes back to the midterms where the Democratic Party seemed to focus a lot of their attention on those Senate seats, which I do understand was important. But at the same time, they weren't paying attention to the seats in the House, and the Republican Party was able to gain back control of the House. So this is just a result. What are you hoping to see out of the State of the Union tonight? Oh, dear. That should be very interesting. I I'm willing, I'm, I'm serious, curious to hear if Joe Biden is going to address the policing issue in this country. We just saw what happened with Tyree Nichols. Uh, there was another incident with uh, an amputee who was killed by the police. So I'm curious to hear what he's going to say about policing. If he's going to say that police need to be funded more, that, that would be really interesting. I'm also here, I'm curious to hear about his statements about the economy, because Joe Biden has been saying that the economy is doing great. Meanwhile, Google and companies like Amazon are laying off thousands of employees. People are being laid off left and right. The, the grocery store price, prices are still relatively expensive. I just paid like $9 for a carton of eggs. So I'm curious to see if he's still going to try to tout that line, that the economy is doing great when the American people know economically we're hurting fundamentally. Hmm. I think that's a really good point about whether or not we're going to hear anything about policing. Uh, Joe Biden was elected in the middle of the, the George Floyd uprising. He did not bend the knee or cater at all to activists, despite it being the peak of that movement. And activists basically have not caused there to be any consequences for the Democratic Party. There has been no connection uh, between their demands and a willingness to vote for Joe Biden because of the fear that Donald Trump or some other Republican could get in office if they don't. So I, it wouldn't be surprising to me if Joe Biden didn't respond at all to Tyree Nichols or, you know, any calls for reform to policing in this country, because his response in the past has been uh, fund the police harder. But I'll definitely be keeping an eye out for that. Thank you so much for joining us today, Savvy. Thanks so much. We'll have more rising for you right after this. Stick around. A powerful earthquake has left more than 5,000 people dead and tens of thousands injured throughout Turkey and Syria after the quake struck yesterday. The earthquake is one of the strongest to hit the region in more than 100 years, CNN reports, and it struck 23 kilometers east of Naranji in Turkey's Zantep province. This footage shows part of the damage the quake left in, in Turkey. Mm. The United States Agency for International Development said it was deploying two specialized search and rescue teams as part of the American response to these deadly events. The two units are based in Virginia and in California. They're the only such teams in the U.S. that work internationally, The New York Times reports. Meanwhile, host of pushback on the gray zone, Aaron Maté, tweeted yesterday, Syria has suffered a devastating earthquake. This war-ravaged country uh, uh, is under crippling U.S. sanctions. 
This tweet is in response to what senior U.S. officials Dana Stroll said about Syria in 2019. Mm. The rest of Syria, though, is, is, is rubble. And what the Russians want and what Assad wants is economic reconstruction. Um, and that is something that the United States can basically hold a card on via the international financial institutions and our cooperation with the Europeans. So we argued that absent behavioral changes by the Assad regime, we should hold the line on preventing reconstruction aid and technical expertise from going back into Syria. The Middle East Council of Churches called the, for the immediate lifting of Western-imposed sanctions on Syria as the current blockage is restricting efforts to provide the Syrian people with help in response to the quake. The council said in a statement, we urge the immediate lifting of sanctions on Syria and allowing access to all materials so that sanctions may not turn into a crime against humanity. What a monstrous thing that that official said. This is a, that this is a moment of desperation for the people of Syria that they're suffering. Well, well that was an, that was an older quote. That was a, a pre-earthquake right. um, quote. But you know, celebrating the idea that the country through civil war has been reduced to rubble. I mean, it's the same it is, basic principle. Exactly, exactly. And that's what Aaron Mate is, you know, pointing out here, that suddenly in the, in the face of a kind of act of God, it might become more obvious to people that it's wrong to be rooting for a country to be devastated the way that Syria has been devastated. I think, you know, something like 90% of the country is living in poverty. Um, they've been dealing with famine, it, obviously, the, through, through just bombing and strife, the, the country has been decimated even before this. Um, but to be rooting for it in a political war context but not, you know, the, mm -hmm. it, but to suddenly realize that uh, the human gravity of it in the earthquake context. And, I mean, they're, really and they're rooting for it because it they want regime change in the government. Right. But is there any evidence that this kind of sanctions uh, policy is helping further the goal? Let's say in an ideal world, that would be great if we, we could swap out Assad with some preferable government. Now we know that in the real world that is a very fraught proposition and that we've made the, we've forced these swaps in the past and they've not always worked out great. But is this even, is it weakening him? As the people die and suffer, does it actually weaken the authoritarian government? I think time and time again we find out, no, that, that immiserating the country, uh, harming, killing, starving, destroying the people, does not actually put them in a position to be prepared to demand changes of their government. Right. In so, fact, it makes yeah. them more desperate for their government to provide for them. Be they're more reliant on the government because we've closed them off from the west, rest of the world as they're dying. Yeah. So this is another one of those situations in Syria where we're doing these kind of proxy wars with with Russia, and there have been critiques from people like the World Food Organization about the fact that the sanctions have not been nearly targeted the way that. Everyone who ever does a sanction claims that they are, and that it has been, been done very little to actually, you know, uh, mm -hmm. thwart uh, Assad or any, anybody right. else. Where's the evidence that Assad can only hold out X more weeks or months or years? There's no evidence. Right. Of well, that. So, the, so the idea is that sanctions prevent, you know, monetary transfers that could be used to, let's say, buy weapons or do other things that mm -hmm. the American government says it has an interest in in preventing. But the reality is, it's preventing um, the import of, of food. It's preventing the import of certain agricultural products that are necessary to, to buy food. Syria was uh, agriculturally independent um, in relatively recent history. This was an achievement that they really celebrated, I think, about 20 years ago. But now um, there's certain products like fertilizers that can be used also for explosive reasons. We see this, this in the United mm -hmm. States. There's a limit on how much fertilizer you can buy, like Walmart and stuff like that. So there are dual-use products that are necessary for agriculture that they can't import because of the sanctions. Moreover, um, there are far is farming equipment and other kind of technical 
stuff that they can't get into the country that's preventing them from being able to grow their own food, and on and on and on down the line. And we know there's a blowback effect to this as well. We know, you know, let's say we only care about the U.S. policy is only interested in its own national security, not the suffering of the Syrian people. But when you when you cause people to suffer and to die like this, and they know, and, and, and we want them to blame the Syrian government. But how many of them actually blame the U.S. or blame the West and become interested in extreme ideas or have fam or that die and then their family members become interested in terrorism or something like that and, and then they, wanna, they, they hate us even more. They want to cause us harm. Like we know that is a phenomenon that happens. Yeah. We've seen that happen. We know our, our interventions, our interferences, our, our attempts to wrangle that part of the world and the suffering that causes invites challenge to us invites revenge. Yeah. How many times do we have to learn that lesson before we change course on some of these policies? Uh, apparently, it's not today. Today is not the day we learn the lesson. It's worth also just noting, um, saying a little bit about the magnitude of this earthquake. I mean, truly unprecedented. I think we mentioned in the read that it's the first in the region of this size for about 100 years. It's comparable in magnitude to the 1906, I believe it was, earthquake that flattened San Francisco, San Francisco. left basically all of the city destroyed. It was 7.8 magnitude. Um, and when you look at the pictures of the devastation, it's really horrible. There was this viral photo of a of a father holding a, the hand emerging from the ru uh, the rubble of what was his teenage daughter who was crushed to death in the in the quake. It really just is a parade of horribles for the people living in this country. And um, of course, we wish them all, all of the best in the recovery. And um, it's good to see some degree of uh, global unity in sending aid to the region. But as we discussed, the crisis preceded the earthquake and it will last long after the rubble from the event is cleaned up. Um, so best of wishes to everybody involved and we will have more rising for you after this. נגיד את זה בצורה רחבה, אני חושב שהייתה החלטה של המערב לגיטימית שכרגע צריך להמשיך להכות בפוטין ולא לא, לא להגיע. אבל מה זה להכות בפוטין? פוטין ניקה באוקראינה, לא? שנייה, לא, בסדר, אבל, אבל שאל מול זאת, הגישה היותר תקיפה, כן. אני אגיד לך משהו. אני לא יודע להגיד שהם שגו. כי אתה אומר, אולי, אולי ש... בריונים אחרים בעולם היו רואים... העמ... זה... העמדה שלי באותו הזמן, אני... בעניין הזה זה לא אינטרס לאומי ישראלי. כן. בשונה מקונסוליה או איראן, שאני דואג לישראל, עומד חזק פה, כן. אין לי say. אני בסך הכל כן. מוציא לפועל ומתווך, אבל אני... הכתובת שלי זה אמריקה בעניין הזה, ואני לא פועל על דעת עצמי. כל פעולה שעשיתי הייתה מתואמת. כן. לפרטי פרטים, גם עם ארה״ב, גם עם גרמניה, גם עם צרפת. אז הם בעצם חדלו את זה? בגדול, כן. בגדול הם חדלו את זה. ובאותו זמן חשבתי שהם שוגים. That was former Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett in an interview posted to his YouTube channel this week. Bennett's comments come just after the chief of the United Nations issued a sober warning regarding the potential for a wider war out of the conflict in Ukraine. Quote, the prospects for peace keep diminishing. The chances of further escalation and bloodshed keep growing. I fear the world is not sleepwalking into a wider war. I fear it is doing so with its eyes wide open. So he is expressing ideas that we are concerned uh, are, are true, that there were options for peace and that the U.S. not only 
didn't take them, but actively sabotaged them mm -hmm. out of a desire to have this keep going because it weakens Putin due to maybe a, a misguided view that this will ultimately result in his downfall and that that will be in the strategic issues of the United States. That is an idea I think is flawed for many reasons. One, I think it is extremely unlikely that this does result in the fall of the Putin administration. That could, ta and that could take years, that could take decades, that could take the, the risk in that time period of us actually escalating to nuclear conflict is, is huge. And then, I mean, it's worth pointing out that even the downfall of the Putin regime would not necessarily be a benefit to uh, right. American security. What if, you know, if Putin was miraculously replaced by a Western-style democratic government? Great, but we've had a lot of problems installing Western-style democratic governments. It could just be another crooked autocrat, or maybe one who is worse. Uh, a lot of our nation-building regime changing in the Middle East, we've we found out that, oh, Saddam Hussein, he's terrible, but what replaces him is worse. Muammar Gaddafi, very bad. What replaces him is, is right. you know, people being beheaded in swimming yeah. pools. It's, it's just horrible. It's a real be careful what you wish for situation. So apparently, um, elsewhere in that interview, he was specific about the concessions that Putin was willing to make. Apparently, both sides had come to the table and were willing to give some con significant concessions before these negotiations negotiations were thwarted. Uh, the Russian side, he said, dropped denazification as a requirement for the ceasefire. Bennett defined denazification as the removal of Zelensky. So that's a <laughs> take take from that what you will. Um, so he agreed to let you know Zelensky uh, stay in power at least as long as he was democratically elected to do so. Um, and on the other side, uh, Zelensky would you know as part of the negotiations renounce uh, seeking uh, NATO membership, which Bennett said was the reason for Russia's invasion. So another aspect of this is hearing so clearly from a former leader of one of our most valued allies uh, that a lot of the rationale for why this war started, which was the NATO provocation, um, is being openly discussed and embraced and understood as kind of like a factual matter, whereas in the United States, saying that, saying that NATO provocation had anything to do with it still largely gets you characterized as a, a Putin puppet, parroting Putin's talking points, trying to misdirect, having a lack of empathy for the suffering of the Ukrainian people and, and all of this. And, the, and I, you can't help but read into the U.S. refusal to engage in any of that narrative, of the origin story of this conflict, with its inability to get out of the conflict. It, it seems there's a relationship there. We want the public to, to think that this was a random act by a crazed lunatic, um, because that way you're not obliged to negotiate, because you can't negotiate with a crazed lunatic. Right. right. But we can always negotiate. We should always be negotiating. It the idea that we wouldn't be pressing for negotiation just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't reflect the will of the people in America, who have uh, out of the kindness of their heart, obviously we, none of us had any choice over it, reality, are, are funding the Ukrainian defense. And the people in power in the U.S. have signaled time and time again that it's just going to be an indefinite commitment. It's an indefinite commitment and that it has is aiming at weakening Vladimir Putin. And that could go on forever. Yeah, and it's worth saying again. That's part of a worldview so. that thinks if these things go on forever, it's fine. Yeah, and, and it's not just conjecture when we say things like they are wanting to weaken Putin. That's the goal. No, We've they had say any that. number of statements from State Department officials, et cetera, who have been very open about that being the goal. In other parts of the world, it's worth noting also that the overwhelming majority of the world, all of the global South, basically, is very 
negative uh, on this conflict. It is not supportive of the America's role in this. There are concerns about famine. Um, you know, we're, I believe we're going to talk later today uh, about uh, the earthquake in, in, in Turkey. And there are implications for, you know, Syria, which has already been uh, racked with famine um, because of the civil war, being further impacted by not only the earthquake, but the sanctions um, and the uh, additionally, the lack of food supply coming out of, of Ukraine, which is the breadbasket of Europe. So all of these tragedies are compounding on each other in ways that a lot of the world can't ignore, because mm -hmm. they're already more financially insecure, more food insecure, and more unstable, et cetera. And so we are living in a bubble where we think that everybody agrees with us, and I think these moments yeah. from, from an ally. Yes, from, that's important. This official is not anti-U.S. Right. at all. It, it, he was very careful what he was saying. He, he, he said he takes his cues from the U.S., so he likes and appreciates the alliance between Israel and the U.S. And, and he said that, you know, when it concerns Iranian policy, for example, that's, you know, that's Israel's forte, that he mm -hmm. feels very strongly it should be one way. Uh, you know, you might disagree with what, I might mm -hmm. disagree with what that policy is, but he, he's saying we have a, Israel gets to set that policy, he's saying for this, okay, this isn't really, our business. this isn't our business, we're kind of neutral here, yeah. this is a dispute between other countries, and here was the arrangement we were working on, but I listened to what the U.S. has to say, and the U.S. said no. Yeah. And he wasn't, he was just stating that. He wasn't even, he was just saying that's the reality. So that's, that's, that's when you really, that's when you have to listen to that and say, that sounds like it probably did happen. I don't expect that clip to get a lot of mainstream airing, but let us know if you see there are any uh, mainstream media discussions of that and the implications of uh, us not having the consensus that we pretend we have here in the United States. And we'll have more rising for you after this. In 2021, the Department of Justice brought charges against a Florida man for allegedly waging a voter suppression campaign in 2016 on Twitter and other social platforms that the government says was an attempt to deprive people of the right to vote. The DOG released a statement about Doug Mackey's arrest back in 2021 that said, with Mackey's arrest, we serve notice that those who would subvert the democratic process in this manner cannot rely on the cloak of internet anonymity to evade responsibility for their crimes. This week, Mackey's attorney, James Lawrence, went on the Tucker Carlson show in defense of his client and denouncing the government for what he contends is an attempt to criminalize political satire. Here's a little of that exchange. We believe that this prosecution represents a significant escalation of the government's regulation of speech under the banner of policing so-called disinformation. And Tucker, really, you were one of the first public figures and one of the most prominent people to criticize Twitter for deplatforming people over so-called disinformation. Uh, but I, I don't think even you would have thought that someone no. would face no. a federal prosecution or potential jail time over alleged memes. Now, uh, here's what's at issue. The government says that this case is about voting rights, but as we've argued, the government has not alleged that a single person didn't right. vote as a result of the alleged memes. So we think that this case goes to the core of the First Amendment, and really, regardless of what you think about the content at issue, everyone in this country, Tucker, left, right, center, and every political persuasion in between should be concerned about what's happening in this case. So what's going on here is this person made a meme that said, you can skip the line and vote for Hillary if you text this number, and they're being Prosecuted. Uh, prosecuted for, for voter misinformation. Election crimes. Yeah. 
Insane. Oh, <laughs> insane. Uh, but. And again here, the, the causal arrow, it's important, it's important to pay attention to. The attorney there is saying, you know, we were all annoyed when we found out that Twitter was taking down tweets of that nature. But now we know from the Twitter files that, don't get mad at Twitter about it, Twitter was receiving constant, constant emails from the FBI saying, this must be taken down, it violates election law, do something mm -hmm. about this now, or you're responsible for the end of democracy as we know it. Well, so yeah. don't get mad at Twitter about this, get mad at the FBI, this, which are, who are the ones bringing charges. Yeah, and that's the thing, this is an escalation. The FBI, who many liberals apparently think is the hero, for, perhaps hero for these kinds of reasons, the hero, yeah. hero of democracy, Sheesh. the FBI, which has been so wonderful and kind to the left, is mm -hmm. prosecuting a person um, for a meme. And, and in, the, in the Tucker Carlson clip, a part we didn't play, they make the point that the joke is on Hillary voters being stupid enough to believe this, not the idea that you're trying to induce them to actually do it. It's like, if, right. if, if I do a meme that says, hey, Trump voters, you can you can vote by you know just clicking this form online right. or like retweet this and it'll register your vote. Right. Does anyone believe I actually think that I'm I'm trying to do election interference or am I joking about the the my perceived credibility of a Trump voter hypothetically? Yeah, no. Yeah. Um, this is very um, Minority Report vibes. Uh, it's it's predicting into the future based on no evidence that anybody's voting behavior was affected in the least. Um, some kind of criminal liability. And it's very disturbing, a step beyond taking down posts. This is actually trying to potentially jail or fine somebody for memeing. It's infuriating to me that a single second of some public employee's time is spent hunting down memes and jokes on Twitter, bugging Twitter about it, and then prosecuting people who do it. This is how federal resources are being spent. We have a law enforcement apparatus that wastes its time and your money hunting down people for telling jokes. Clearly, by the way, First Amendment protected jokes. I, I think there's no real debate here. I think we can all imagine what the Supreme Court is going to say 9-0 to this one if it ever got to that. Uh, this, is, this is absolutely First Amendment protected activity. But the idea that the government would think it's a good use of time. Well, also, even if ultimately— That we're protecting elections, but that, that the integrity of the election yeah. means not letting people joke about this stuff. I mean, ultimately, even if you— Order, if this case goes nowhere and you know the defendant um, best these claims, the whole the, the the chilling effect of the FBI using its powers and its resources to catch a, a civilian up in in litigation like this for potentially years is the problem in and of itself. Yes. To wield the power of the state for these kind of coercive effects. This is a warning call that's gone out that says, be careful what you mean. And for anyone who is like, well, I don't care, this this person, we don't actually know what their political orientation is. You know, the fact that they're in Florida leads people to think this is a conservative. But I look at this meme and I, and I think that's easily a meme that leftists could have been mm -hmm. tweeting about in 2016. I mean, easily. <laughs> nope, a lot yeah. of people didn't like Hillary Clinton in 2016. Um, so if you think that this doesn't affect you because this isn't your political cohort, that's mistaken. Yeah, very, very foolish. Uh, just very, just, just wild that they're wasting their time on this, and that they they can think that this is a good thing to do. Yeah, and, and I will say this is another one of those instances where, again, I don't know who made the choice to pursue this um, persecution, but it really is the liberals setting themselves up once again 
for being characterized as being anti-speech, anti-freedom, pro-censorship. I mean, we are and living- humorless, right? And, and humorless, but we're, we're living at a time where there are literally over 150 anti-trans laws that have been promulgated in just the first month of this year. We're living at a time when there have been book bans all across the country and where the uh, AP College African American History course has excluded a number of very normy, inoffensive authors like Alice Walker, you know, whose books are the subject of major motion pictures, Oscar-nominated, you know, classics in American, you know, in American um, oeuvre. And somehow Dems can manage to fumble the ball and let the attention get diverted back over to stuff like this because it's legitimately a real problem. And, and it, it seems like a, oh, both sides are doing it situation now when I think the a lot of legislation is very meaningful and isn't being substantively paid, paid attention to because, oh, look at the, the look at these um, other fights or culture war fights or whatever it is going on over here. And this is a legitimate concern. This isn't just some culture war fight. This is a, literally an FBI prosecution. Yeah, I, I think it shows you how hollow both sides, both parties' commitments to free speech really are, that when in power in, in whatever municipality they control, right now it's aspects of the federal government controlled by Biden-type people, and, but, and then you have, I, I think, some legitimate complaints with policies being enacted by Republicans in various states and by the local level, just shows you that both parties are very eager to use law enforcement resources at their disposal to punish people for saying things they don't like or expressing ideas or learning about ideas they don't like and uh, and take a very narrow and selective view of what violates the First Amendment. And it's, yeah. it's a tale as old as time, but yeah. the, their resources to are, are getting more vast as these bureaucracies get Indeed. more complicated. We'll file this under a point for defund the FBI, Robbie. Yeah, defund it. <laughs> Bring it down. <laughs> Much in chagrin of many people on both the right and the left. I stand firm in that commitment that on this narrow issue, Marjorie Taylor Greene had half a good idea. Mm, All right. I'm after you for saying that. I know, I'll keep saying it though. We're rising right after this. Social conservatives online are hitting out against Sunday night's Grammy Awards, claiming Satanism was on display during Sam Smith and Kim Petra's fiery performance of their hit song, Unholy. In anticipation of the performance, the official CBS account tweeted about being ready to worship Smith and Petrus, fueling claims the network has been, quote, compromised by evil. <laughs> MSNBC host Joanne Reed defended Unholy yesterday. Let's watch. I hadn't watched in years, but I actually really enjoyed it. Although I'm not sure everybody else did. It was, to put it mildly, a celebration of the very thing the American right has turned into its latest anti-wokeness boogeyman diversity, equity, and inclusion. The show opened with Puerto Rican singer Bad Bunny singing 99% in Spanish. Then host Trevor Noah walked and talked through a room that was diversity, equity, and inclusion in human form. The first country Americana artist to perform, Brandi Carlisle, was introduced by her wife and daughters. We saw the first trans artist win a Grammy, Kim Petras, who has a hit song with Sam Smith the British singer who came out in 2019 as non-binary. Black acting superstar Viola Davis became an EGOT, winning a Grammy to add to her Golden Globe, Oscar, and Tony Awards. Lizzo performed with her amazing choir of many-sized singers. Beyonce took home her 32nd Grammy to become the most Grammy-decorated singer of all time. Besting, and I had to look this up, Hungarian-British conductor George Solti. 
Record of the year went to Harry Styles, a British male singer who frequently puts on dresses to pose in magazines and is a sex symbol to women and men because of it. And there was a 15-minute epic tribute to the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. So, yeah, the culture wars are over, and the left won, like, total defeat. So is uh, look at look at the diversity on display there. So is this? I, I'm sure Brianna that you can go home happy knowing the left has won because a room full of wealthy Hollywood celebrities includes uh, a couple black folks and uh, a trans yeah, person or two. Exactly uh, right. The mean, left wins. Yeah, look, I, I think it's over. She, the thing that she's obviously right about the culture war uh, battle of it all. I think that frankly it's uh, reflective of. The fact that there's not bipartisanship on on a lot of these issues, the fact that the the main country singer, performer, incredibly popular woman, uh, Brenda Carlisle, is lesbian, and it's not turning off like country audiences who you might presume are more conservative audiences. The fact that th th this is the norm uh, on all sides of the aisle of all consumers who are watching this show does speak to the fact that the culture wars have been won. Now, to your point, Robbie, that's it is DEI because it's not actually substantive. It's not about class. Everybody in that room is a millionaire, et cetera, et cetera. Like, it's ridiculous to take more out of that than what it is. It's, it's, it's superficial. It's meaningful, but it's superficial. The question is whether or not there, we're now experiencing backlash to that victory because the internet was replete with folks saying that this was a problem in large part because of the, the Kim Petras, um, Sam Smith award acceptance speech. The fact of Kim Petras being a trans woman uh, winning this historic award and the fact that their performance included this kind of devil uh, iconography. Conservative commentator Matt Walsh uh, joined the discourse when he tweeted that Petras, who on Sunday became the first openly transgender woman to win a Grammy, received gender uh, reassignment surgery in Germany before turning 18 years old. Quote, keep that in mind when they tell you that these procedures aren't being performed on minors, to which queer legislative researcher Aaron Reed responded, Kim Petras was one of an extremely few people who ever got bottom surgery younger than 18. She got it in Germany and had to get special permission from a court. The bills they are pushing in the United States would eliminate even her hormone therapy. What do you make of this um, choice I by mean, Matt Walsh to battle this out? Well, I mean, he's... He, he, this is what he lives for, is this kind of online discourse of being angry about liberalism. But people lo live for, for making Matt Walsh mad as well. And that's the only thing I would suggest here. Like, I, I don't really care about you know, the, the Satanism performed. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> but there's a, two sides to this, right? There's a, there's a desire and a willingness to offend and provoke Christian conservatives, or maybe just Christians. And... Then they get all offended, and they're like, oh, you're offended. But that was the point of the thing. So it's like there's both sides here. Like, Do you think that the devil performance, I guess I didn't take it as an effort to offend Christians. I think it's generally a little transgressive, although honestly, like little kids dress up as devils for Halloween. I don't think it's especially transgressive. It's not like Madonna having like nuns and thongs oh. dancing on the stage, you know, in the 80s. Like this isn't even as transgressive as that. It's, it's just, are people really that? Bugged out by the idea of like, I mean, I think people hell were, iconography. I think people were angry about that. It, this this is the only kind of cultural religious type thing you're allowed to mock or make fun of. I think uh, the devil bugs some people. Well, the whole it, it was it was satanistic. I mean, it's I, 
Again, I don't care. So many, but so much of this pop I don't care. Is, I'm bad. I'm a bad girl. I'm subversive. I'm, yeah. you know, I'm kicking over trash cans and, you know, whatever. I, I'm, I like, just that's the, pop music. We, we did we did a performance that we know a bunch of people are going to find incredibly offensive, and now we're which was the point of doing it, and now everyone's. Now some people are incredibly offended, and we're like, "Oh no!" no like maybe, it's, maybe, it's maybe two, I, everybody needs each other in this struggle. Maybe I'm naive. I just I am genuinely surprised that I agree with you. I, I mean, the, I mean, there's, there's a nothing transgressive art about that's it. Filled but, with pictures of the devil, like the devil, like well, but the mainstream media was probably the one saying it was transgressive and pointing to people being offended as the reason why. I don't know about that. I did. I, did, I don't care. I did I don't observe care. the, I like the, the trans aspect of this. I think is really interesting because I only because I am old and not checked in wasn't that familiar with Kim Petras and I, I saw her except I like her, her music a her lot speech I do you know I I I and this this is neither here nor there I honestly didn't know that she was trans and mm -hmm. I still didn't know you know after watching her speech or anything so Matt Walsh has obviously made a name for himself walking around asking this question what is a woman and really playing on the idea that everybody obviously knows how to answer this question kind of exploiting the idea exploiting dissonance around people who may or may not have passed as as mm -hmm. easily as someone like Kim and it is interesting to be raising these kinds of issues in the context of someone who did transition very young who and is thus very who, who pass, I, is, is I, not someone yes, you would even I think know you're the weirdo woman, I mean yeah. it, it, to, to point to engage with someone like Kim and like to point to her and say this is a man is as he has done, as sorry, as Ben Shapiro, I should say, has done, he very pointedly misgendered uh, Kim in a tweet uh, earlier this week. You know, it, it, it does make you seem to be the weird one. And it, it, none of this should hinge people, how much respect you pay to people shouldn't obviously hinge on how you know, how well they pass. But it is, I think, an interesting counterexample to the ones that Matt Walsh set up in his movie. Yeah, uh, I, I remember watching an interesting discussion slash debate between uh, Ben Shapiro and Blair White. Blair White is a trans woman, a conservative YouTuber. Trans woman, I, I don't know at what age she transitioned, but you would not, she looks very much like a woman. Um, and, uh, and they had a discussion where she was like, look, you, if you were trying to describe me, if you showed up to a restaurant and you're telling the maitre d', oh, you sit me with my friend Blair, they're like, well, what, what does that person look like? You would describe me as what well. you'd say, you know, she, you would describe my physical characteristics. You would use a female pronoun to of convey course. that that's who I am and that that should matter something in this debate. Yeah, Buck Angel, who has come down as very critical of a lot of the mm -hmm. kind of what woke, I don't know, side of the, of the gender discourse here, um, has made this point. He says you know, he's, he, he, he transitioned as well um, from female to male, and, and he says, well, no one would confuse me as a woman, like nobody, nobody, you know, he's jacked and has tattoos and is often topless and bearded. I mean, nobody would confuse him as a woman. And, you know, he puts more weight, as I understand it, on the optics of things and saying that, like, you would you would scream and yell and call the cops on me if I were to go into a woman's restroom. So why are we pretending otherwise? At the same time that he is critical of some other aspects of the yeah the movement and pronouns and things like that. But still, it, it just points to the fact that Matt Walsh pretending like these questions are very obvious based on what people look like is easily dispelled immediately by is any there, interaction with real trans people. Is there some people. pretending on the other side? Honestly, it's kind of an interesting juxta juxtaposition. Um, Kim Petras next to Sam Smith. Kim Petras, I agree, presents so convincingly as a woman, you would, most people just concede that's a woman. Uh, next to Sam Smith, who is, identifies as non-binary, I think that's confusing to a lot of people, looks 
like a man, yeah, he's maybe not, a feminine he man is is, way, is is wearing perhaps the clothing of uh, of a non-male, but it, like is that what it's all about? It, it's very it's th that's an interesting juxtaposition. Well, to I don't me. I don't think that uh, I don't think that Sam Smith is trying to gain access to women's restrooms. I didn't say, or, I didn't no, say I, that. No, I'm not saying that you are, but I'm saying that's a meaningful difference. Who cares if, if Sam is occupying a liminal space, if there's actually, he's making absolutely no demands of anybody, no legislative demands, no special considerations for access to anywhere, anything. Like, he's just like people have done from time mm -hmm. immemorial, dressed in a variety of clothing, because they want to. Whether well, but he's not just doing, doing that. He's doing or, that, or they is doing that, and then insisting you identify them as a... Well, he's asking people to yeah. identify him as non, sorry, them as non-binary. And you and I both just, I, my end, inadvertently misgendered him a bunch of times. I guess I would not blame people for thinking So there's Kim no Petrus, Gestapo that's going to yank us no, off the stage because but, we did so. But I guess I would not, if people don't struggle to do that with Kim Petras because she seems to be a woman and do struggle to do that with Sam Smith, I would understand the difference right, looking at them Sam next to each other. isn't trans. Mm -hmm. They're just non-binary. So it's just an apples and oranges comparison. It's like saying, I understand people not struggling well, with identifying him to, as a woman. to identify them as other than their birth gender presentation. Sure. Sure. So what, what, what do you what draw from that mean? conclusion? Well, then what does it even mean? I, what do you mean? What does it even mean? What does it mean to be, to be ambiguously gendered or to be non non-binary? I think it has always been the case. There are a lot of people who. It just means I, you wear different clothes. That's what it means. Well, no, it's that people don't identify as one gender or the other. Well, but I mean, that's, that's you're just repeating what it is. What does that mean? It means that they don't feel strongly about being one gender or another. I don't. But what are the characteristics of that? You just wear different clothes. You can manifest that in a lot of different ways. I'm sure non-binary people sometimes dress very much as the gender of their birth, and sometimes dress otherwise. I, I don't. I don't know. It doesn't like bother me or preoccupy me in any way. If you don't want to, like, it's like if if I come in and say, Robbie, I don't want to go by Brianna anymore. I, you know, I prefer to go by Brie. Mm -hmm. Like, I, it would not be this prolonged conversation. Everyone should be like, okay, I'll call you Brie. Or if I said, please don't refer to Brie, to me as Brie on camera anymore, it's not professional, let's go by Brianna, nobody would shake a stick at that. Nobody would care. And so we have to ask ourselves as a society, not whether we are unsettled by something or bothered by something. I'm bothered by a lot of stuff. I'm irritated by a lot of stuff. I think a lot of people aren't polite or they don't have social mores that I would prefer to follow and stuff like that. And you're allowed to be weirded out, irritated, roll your eyes. You're allowed to do all of that. There's no law against that. But if I mean, you you're choose, being... wait, but if you choose to violate somebody else's preferences and they get mad at you, or they think you're rude, or they think you're impolite, they're also allowed to make those judgments of you. That's it. You can choose to be polite and like make people happy. You can choose not to make people happy. The problem is that one side of this is saying, I prefer you be polite to me. And the other side of this is saying, here's legislation that prevents you from get gender, getting yeah, gender-affirming yeah, yeah, surgery different. or even wearing whatever clothes that you want. And your little kid isn't going to be able to dress up as, your little girl can't be Peter Pan on Halloween now because they're banning drag in some states. I mean, there was a whole uh, discourse where it was the, it was the liberals didn't want... Uh, didn't want the white girl to be Moana or that kind of thing. I've read a lot of what white posts girl about was that. Moana. Moana's not white. 
What white I girl remember was being reading, No, just you were advised if you were a parent of a white child. Was there not legislation to let them, that prevented no, white No, there was anger, there was outrage from. Exactly. So when there's legislation, as there is, that is legislation limiting I'm trans Americans' ability to have rights, that's fine. I'm not, it's not about you, Robbie. I'm talking to an audience of people who need to know that this is not a both sides issue. There is legislation over 150 laws that have been promulgated in just the first, whatever, six weeks of this year to limit the ability of trans Americans to live. And on the other side, we have people who are very upset that Kim Petras got gender surgery in Germany. I don't, yeah. I, I don't know how many people are upset about that. But anyway, we, <laughs> we got a wrap. Tomorrow on Rising, we'll be right back here. Same place, same time. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you later.